Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success? And how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. I love music. I love all types of music. I love how music brings people together and changes our moods. That's why I wanted to get someone on the podcast to talk about music and had the great fortune of sitting down with the daughter of Bob Moog, inventor of the Moog synthesizer. Synthesizers, of course, have been played by hundreds of musicians for decades, but some of the famous names that have played the Moog synthesizer include The Doors, The Beatles, some of the biggest names in music. So it was such an honor to sit down at the Moogseum in Asheville, North Carolina, and have the following conversation about Bob and his pioneering spirit and his ingenious way of problem solving and the way he humbly created a tool that musicians across genres, across generations, would use to hone their creativity and share it with the rest of the world, therefore connecting people, again, across generations. Please join us now in conversation. Let's start at the beginning. Who is Bob Moog? Bob okay. Moog yeah. um, is a synthesizer pioneer who invented the Moog synthesizer in 1964 and revolutionized the face of music with the capability that this new instrument provided. Where did that desire to create a synthesizer come from? Well, it goes way back to his childhood when um, his father, George Moog, was... Uh, an electrical engineer. He worked for Con Edison in New York City. And pretty early, he um, identified that Bob had an aptitude for um, for electronic projects. And they started building electronic hobbyist projects at, together. Um, from the time of 10 years old, they would build three-note or organs and Geiger counters and um, a variety of things. And then um, around 14 or 15, um, Bob started making theremins. And um, for those in your audience who may not know, the theremin is a very early electronic musical instrument that was um, invented by Leon Theremin in 1920. So Bob came upon it about 20 
years after that, mm. and or 25 years after that. And he just fell in love with it. The, um, the, you play the theremin without touching it. And to him, that was a very, very captivating, um, you know, idea of musical expression. Yeah. And he also was very taken with Leon Theremin's design. Mm. Um, they were very elegant designs that mm -hmm. led to a very expressive instrument. And that really informed his design ethos the rest of his life. Um, so he built theremins um, all throughout his teenage years. And by the time he was 19, he was proficient enough that he wrote a uh, magazine article for radio and television news, which was a kind of hobbyist magazine yeah. on how to build your own theremin. He was a freshman in college uh, mm -hmm. when it came out. And that article essentially launched his first business, R.A. Moco, um, which he ran out of his the basement of his parents' house. Um, and he sold the theremin parts and uh, assembled theremins. And that business grew while he was in graduate school. And um, when he in 1961, he developed a particularly popular theremin kit called the Melodia, which is one of his first transistorized theremins. And so it was smaller and easier to put together. Yeah. And a young professor at Hofstra University used the Melodia for ear training in his classes. He was also a, an experimental jazz composer. And he happened to meet Bob Moog at a New York State Music Educators Conference mm -hmm. in, at the end of 1963. And he approached him and said, listen, I have one of your, your theremins, and I'm a composer, but I can't. There are all kinds of sounds I want to make that with the technology we have today, I just can't make. Do you think, do you think there's something that you could construct for me that would make the sounds that I hear in my head, but I can't make with any of the technology today. Yeah. And uh, so Bob said yes, not knowing what he was getting into, but completely intrigued by the idea. So they met um, a couple times um, in the next several months. And then in the summer of 1964, this gentleman's name was Herb Deutsch. He okay. came up to Trumansburg, New York, right outside of Ithaca, where R.A. Moog Co. was at that time just producing theremins and amplifiers. Mm -hmm. And together, um, they went through a process of Herb identifying what he needed as a musician and Bob building the circuitry. Interesting. And at the end, they had uh, breadboard prototypes that Herb was actually able to play and compose on. And Bob, where did his love for music come from? Because just because you're into electronics or you have an aptitude for it or have a scientific mind doesn't necessarily mean, obviously, you're going to go into music. He could have went into, you know, early computer science or, you know, he could have went down a different path. Why... Yeah music? Why composing? That's a great question. And I left that part out. Um, he played the piano for 14 years, starting when he was four years old. So, and his mother was very strict about him taking lessons. Yeah. And so he did, um, he was good enough that he studied at the Manhattan School of Music in his teenage years. And that he, they offered him the 
professional accompanist track. They didn't oh, think wow. he was quite good enough to be a professional pianist, but that he was good enough to be a professional accompanist. And at that point, he turned it down and said, I think I'd rather build electronic musical instruments Wow! in the basement with my dad, which I <laughs> crushed my grandmother. Uh-huh. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, it really led to Bob's dedication, you know, to uh, um, to building electronic musical instruments, which led him to where he, you know, yeah. met Herb Deutsch and developed the Moog synthesizer. What an interesting thing to have someone say to you, I want an instrument that can produce the sounds I hear in my head and have someone go, okay, I can do that. How do you even comprehend what the sounds are in someone else's head. I, I mean, that's just, it's, you know, I, I love that someone said that to him. And he said, okay, I'll take that challenge. <laughs> I, I think that Herb was able to vocalize those sounds. Mm, gotcha. Or at least give an idea. Yeah. And maybe even describe them in musical terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fortunate because... Um, Bob did have a musical background, so he he didn't consider himself a musician yeah. because he said, you know, his quote was just because you can just because you play music doesn't mean you're a musician. Mm. I mean, to him, there was something very special about a true musician. He didn't feel like he kind of had that X factor, yeah. but he had enough training to understand Herb's needs. So he was kind of a scientist that spoke music. In this conversation, you're calling him Bob. He is your father. Is there, do you do that for professional reasons? Um, in these conversations, you don't write up front, per se, introduce yourself as his daughter. I'm just curious about that. Um, I don't want to say oversight, but I think it's a unique thing where most people might just come right out and say, well, he was my dad and da 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 da. And I've noticed that in other interviews as well until someone asks you or maybe says it at the intro one may not know that you're his daughter. It's true. Um, I get a lot of surprised reactions when people find that out. But there is a reason I do that. Um, and it's there. It's twofold. First is that I view my dad and Bob Moog as two different people. Mm. I knew my dad, but I never really met Bob Moog truly until my dad died. Interesting. Uh, my dad didn't really talk about his work that much. We kind of knew the basics of it, but it wasn't until he passed away and we got an outpouring from all over the world about how Bob Moke changed and inspired people's lives from thousands of people that I began to understand who Bob Moke really was. Wow. So that's one of the reasons that Mm -hmm. I keep them separate. The other one is that I want to be very careful about how this foundation is perceived, the Bob (laughs) Moak Foundation. Um, I did help found it, but it wasn't because he was my dad. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes people will say to me, it's such a nice thing you're doing for your dad. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very nice of them to say that, but that's not why I'm doing this. I mean, I think Bob Moak's place in... Um, musical history is pretty secure. I right. I don't necessarily need to add to that. Um, however, the the real reason for the creation of the Bob Moog Foundation is to carry on the inspiration that we felt from all the people who wrote to us. Mm. The the work that Bob Moog did 
caused such transformation in people's lives and continues to, yeah. that we felt that that was a legacy that deserved to be carry yeah. on, carried on. So that's my focus, mm -hmm. is that inspiration, using the legacy as a vehicle to engage people, to inspire them, to... Um, to encourage them to embrace a process of discovery, to become more creative thinkers mm -hmm. in, in everything that we do. Yeah. So that's another reason that I'm careful about, you know, not saying my dad all the time because this foundation is not, that's not what this foundation is about. Right. It's much, much bigger than that. Mm. We're here in Asheville and the museum is here in Asheville. What is the connection of Bob in Asheville? Why is this here? So the Moxeum is in Asheville because um, Bob, along with his entire family, moved to Asheville in 1978. He had just left Moog Music up in Buffalo, and there's a whole history behind that, but um, the company was no longer his, and um, it was run by a corporation, and he wasn't really interested in corporate life. Yeah. So he, he cashed out his shares in the company and bought 89 acres out in the country, and um, lived here from 1978 to when he passed away in 2005, with the exception of a brief stint in, in Boston when he worked for Kurzweil Music Systems. Okay. So this was really his his spiritual home, mm. um, despite the fact that in 19 from 84 to 89 he left. As soon as he could, he returned mm. right back here. Mm -hmm. So he really loved this area. I've heard you in another interview refer to your dad as very wise and 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 I can't remember the exact phrase you used but it it had to do with having a different type of energy or a different type of insight. Could you elaborate a little bit on that and and maybe try to express what you mean by that? The way I think about it and what I usually say is that he had a very deep uh rare presence. Mm. Even from the time that I was a little girl, I could sense that he was connected to the universe in a different way than anyone else that I knew. And I think almost everyone else that I still know, which is saying a lot because I know a lot more people now. Yeah. Um, and that sense has just been confirmed throughout my life and particularly as I've taken on this position. Mm. Um, you know, as an example, there is a documentary out called Moog that came out in 2004 mm. um, that Hans Federstadt, um produced. It is on YouTube. Mm. And at one point, um, they have Bob sitting on swing and uh, the porch swing and the interview says to him um where do you get your ideas from and he clears his throat and he says well it would be egotistical of me to say that my ideas were my own i believe that there's a network of ideas and he goes like this making a circular motion around his head like kind of a funnel and that i tap into that network and open myself up and the ideas come through me mm. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Yeah. I also, um, you know, in a more general sense, uh, 
I I have a, a little issue with people who say, well, Bob would have thought this. Well, Bob would have thought that. The thing that I realized throughout my entire life is you never knew what Bob was going to think exactly. Mm. It, it It's egotistical of people to think that they knew what Bob would think. Mm. Interesting. Um, and I was, all, you know, as a kid, when I was a bit more naive, I would kind of assume I knew what dad was going to think. And um, then he would come out with something totally different that I could have never imagined myself. And mm -hmm. I eventually realized that I could I could never assume there was a lot lot going on in that big brain and he was he was connected to whatever forces those are mm -hmm. spiritual intellectual uh, cosmic forces yeah. than 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 mo most of us I would say yeah very interesting I like that <clears throat> I like that description I had a thing recently that was very similar feeling like tapping into whatever that cosmic ring of ideas is out there and and finding yourself and going, wow, that's connected to this thing way over here. And I never thought I'd be here or doing this or creating this. So I, I love that description. Talk to us a little bit about what the goals of the foundation are um, in preserving his legacy, but uh, carrying on for, for the future of, of music and the, in the synthesizer. So the, the mission of the foundation is some of what we've talked about. It's mm -hmm. to um, inspire people mm -hmm. of all ages by providing interactive experiences at the intersection of science, music, mm -hmm. history, and innovation. Mm -hmm. And the way that we carry that forward is through three main projects. The first of which is Dr. Bob Sound School. Mm -hmm. which is our Hallmark educational program through which we teach um, second graders about the science of sound through music and technology. It's a 10-week curriculum, so it's not like a, a you know, two-hour presentation where we go in and out of the schools. It's a 10-week curriculum that meets state standards mm -hmm. um, but is highly experiential and multisensory and integrates musical instruments or apparatuses in just about every activity. Wow. We train second grade teachers about the science of sound and about the curriculum, which is quite extensive. Mm -hmm. And then they teach the kids. So we've taught over 30,000 kids in um, Asheville, North Carolina wow. so far. And we are very close to um, scaling the program nationwide. We've wanted to do that for a long time. But we've in order to do that, we had to create our own educational tool, mm -hmm. and we have a hardware version and a software version of that tool, finally, and they are both in beta testing, so we're really excited about um, being able to inspire more kids uh, outside of our local area. That's awesome. The um, second project is the preservation of the Bob Moog Foundation archives. Mm -hmm. um, which is about 10,000 items strong at this mm. point between our digital archive and our physical archive, and it is ever-growing. Mm. We continue even this morning. I We got a donation that I found on my desk, which is an absolutely stunning program from 1938 from a virtuoso theremin player who's very close to the Moog legacy. Oh, wow. um, and so we protect and preserve all of those items um, in order to share them mm. with researchers, journalists, um, with other museums. Mm. 
and of course through the museum itself and um, online. Mm-hmm. And then the third, the third project is the museum, where the uh, educational part of Dr. Bob Sound School and the archival preservation of the Bob Moog Foundation archives kind of converge, mm-hmm. and we bring Bob Moog's legacy alive um, by providing history, music, science, um, all in very accessible interactive exhibits mm-hmm. that were all custom designed just for us um, in order to inspire people uh, to be to think more creatively about the world around them mm-hmm. and to understand also get, um, that Bob Moog was a real human being. We mm-hmm. see him, a lot of people see him up on a pedestal. And sure. I, I, I think a lot of times people like that, our heroes, our mentors are um, are kind of assessed by their one by their mm-hmm. highest accomplishment. Sure. But um, that doesn't really give you an accurate picture of who they are or what their life was like. Mm. So we start off in the Moogseum giving people an idea of Bob Moog's up and ups and downs, and he had many, many of them. And my goal in that was to help people understand that he had ups and downs just like they have ups and downs. He um, had to pick himself up and dust himself off and persevere. Yeah. And that you don't necessarily have to, um, you know, have – it's not just having a special skill set that leads you to those kind of accomplishments. It's mm-hmm. also – characteristics that we can all muster the commitment the perseverance the dedication yeah and that's what we want to encourage in people and just being open to new ideas Mm. i love that what are some of the hands-on experiences here at the museum that people can can come in and participate in well, we have two timelines, the Bob Moog timeline and the time um timeline of synthesis Mm. um they uh, both have interactive screens attached mm-hmm. to them. So gorgeous photos on the walls um, that tell a complete story in and of themselves. But because the museum is modest size, we didn't want to be limited by the size we had. So the touch screens hold over between the two exhibits, hold over a thousand pieces of archival material um, Mm -hmm. that people can access. And that ranges from audio and video to um, photos and correspondence and schematics. um, And the list just kind of goes on and on. So anything that someone is interested in, they can delve much deeper into. Um, We also have an interactive dome that Mm -hmm. teaches people how electricity turns into sound when it's traveling through a circuit board. Interesting. That's really neat. Yes. uh, We have an exhibit on the theremin where you can, it teaches you how to play a theremin, (laughs) teaches you how it works. Which I meant to ask you, not to interrupt you, but you mentioned early on that the theremin is played without touching it. Are we spoiling, alerting if I ask you how that's done? Or should I tell people to come here and, and learn no, about no, no, it No, 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 no. It's not, not spoiling at all. <laughs> so the theremin is essentially a cabinet that holds circuitry with two antenna coming out of it. One is a vertical antenna and the other is a horizontal antenna. Okay. The, the vertical antenna controls pitch. The horizontal antenna controls volume. Okay. 
inside the cabinet in the circuitry, there are two oscillators, which are tone producers. Um, they are what's called heterodyning oscillators, which means that um, the frequency difference between the two oscillators is taken to emit an electromagnetic field okay. around the antenna. Depending on how your hand interacts with that electromagnetic field, it either produces a sound or it controls the volume. So your, the kind of um, makeup of your body is acting as a capacitor mm -hmm. in an electronic circuit. Gotcha. Okay. So it's played by moving your hands in that field, but you never touch the that. antenna. Fascinating. I love that. So we teach people uh, all about the theremin. Um, and then our newest exhibit um, is called Patching Sound, and we teach people how to patch a modular synthesizer. Dang, that's yeah, so fun. Yeah, kind of step by step so anyone yeah. can do it. It's, it's very approachable. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I've made sure that things are very approachable here is because I didn't grow up understanding them. Right. I've wondered about all this stuff my entire life. Yeah. And so I, you know, there have been times in my career that I've um, been a little, shall we say, maybe embarrassed about the, my lack of knowledge of the, the subject matter, mm -hmm. um, especially compared to Bob. <laughs> for example. Um, <laughs> but I realized that it has really served me very well, and, and particularly in designing the Moxium, yeah. um, because a lot of the exhibit designers actually had a much higher understanding of synthesis um, than I do. Mm -hmm. And I had to rein them in in the way they were explaining things. Like, you can't just assume people know what an oscillator is. Right. For example. Right. So the patching sound exhibit is right along with that. And it's like, you know, very simple. It'll take the yellow cord and put it where the yellow light is, put it where the other yellow light is. You've now, you know, patched your oscillator. And, you know, now take the knobs and turn it and you should be hearing this. And, um, you know, then it goes on to the next step and so on and so on. And by the time someone's done, they've they've made an, a complete patch on a modular synthesizer. Breaking it down so it's understandable to provide that avenue for creativity and that interest. And, in, you know, it starts it, it can be overwhelming when you think of electronic music or synthesizers. And for a lot of people, we only know that word from hearing a musician talk about it or seeing it listed on a record, right? Many of us, I'm not musical and I haven't worked with music. I've never utilized a synthesizer and I don't, I, I wouldn't know where to start either. So it's really neat that you guys stepped it down to layman. So you don't have to be a expert in electronic music or synthesis or, or really instrumentation to come in and enjoy this experience. Yeah, you just have to kind of have an open mind. That's yeah. all. I wanna and wanna explore. Yeah. What um when the synthesizer uh was first created by Bob, what were some of the first records that it appeared on? The doors, mm. the monkeys, the beetles, and the birds were some of the earliest users. Wow. Some of the biggest names in music were yes. the earliest users. Wow. Yes, it just so happened that all of them kind of um came upon the Moog modular being uh, 
kind of displayed at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 uh. by um, Paul Beaver, who had just become the West Coast rep for R.A.M. Co. So they all used it in ways that were a little bit more kind of like sonic textures or sound effects, mm. but not as a primary instrument. It wasn't until Wendy Carlos came out with Switched on Bach in 1968 that the Moog synthesizer was used as a true uh, primary musical instrument. She performed Bach only on the Moog modular. And that was an absolutely groundbreaking record. It was a best-selling classical record mm -hmm. of that time for many, many years. And it was a result of not only her musical and technical genius, mm -hmm. um, but her commitment to that project because she used to tell me she would have to, you know, she was constantly patching and repatching the synthesizer. And it, she would, it would take her 20 minutes just to record nine notes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it was a... Uh, a, a real um, effort of of dedication and skill and talent, um, and, and that that album actually inspired a, a whole generation mm. of other musicians, like Keith Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer. It's how he got into mm. it. Aisao Tomita, who is a Japanese composer, he first heard Switch on Bach, and you know, on and on and on. And I still have so many people telling me that's how they first were introduced to the Moog synthesizer. So I would say that was um, probably the most groundbreaking moment in Moog synthesizer history was Switch on Bach. Wow. Keith Emerson of Emerson Lake and Palmer then really introduced it as a rock instrument because he actually took this huge Moog modular on tour. And he would use it on stage to great effect. I mean, he also was um, a, a musical genius and mm -hmm. an incredible showman um, and extremely talented. And uh, he he brought the Moog modular to new heights in the rock context. Mm -hmm. Kind of to step back, because with all of this happening around Bob's invention, you had mentioned early on in this conversation that you knew your dad and you didn't know Bob. How did he keep those two worlds of his personal life and his professional life or creative life so separate? Was that purposeful on his part or was that almost by accident? Like I'm kind of in my laboratory cooking up these inventions and then I step into my home and I'm a dad. I think it's both. Okay. He, did, he did work a lot. So mm -hmm. he was often either at work or he always had an at-home workshop. Mm -hmm. And so we'd have dinner together and then he would go down to his workshop until it was time to go, go, go to bed. Gotcha. So that's, you know, the memories I have of his workshop are primarily from me going out at, you know, tiptoeing out there at 830 at night and to say goodnight to him. Mm -hmm. Um so that was part of it. But the other part is even when we were together, he didn't really talk about his work. Now, my experience is different than, say, my oldest sister, Laura, who's seven years older than I am. Okay. I was born in 1968. She was born in 1961. By the time, say, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer came along um, in 1972, I was four years old. Mm -hmm. I was not old enough 
to go to a rock concert. Sure. My sister was. So both of my sisters have been to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer concerts. So And they got a little bit more of an idea of what dad was associated with, whereas yeah. I did not. By mm-hmm. the time I was old enough to do something like that, we moved to the back hills of Western North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, where dad, you know, stepped away from all of that. So I think that um, there are so many reasons that go into why he didn't talk about his career that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of them was that he had a very uncomfortable relationship with celebrity. Mm. He didn't like the adulation um, that he sometimes received. I mean, I was actually with yeah. him once when someone got down on their knees in front of him and started kind of like bowing to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made him very, very uncomfortable. And I, you know, A, he he didn't embrace the idea of celebrity. He didn't. He was more of a humanist mm-hmm. and not someone who thought in terms of exclusivity. Okay. So to, he was never the kind of person who wanted to think of himself as better than everybody else, more accomplished than everybody else. That's mm-hmm. not the way that he thought of himself. The other thing is I think he recognized that um, he sometimes got um, attributed to things that he didn't feel – were accurate. Like people would say that Bob Moog invented the synthesizer. Mm. That's not true. Mm. Bob Moog invented the Moog synthesizer. Mm. There were many other synthesizers and there were early synthesizers and there were other pioneers who were doing really important work who were not as well known. Mm. And that made him uncomfortable to the extent that in his later years, he would lecture about um electronic music history and he would celebrate the people who came before him and the and his contemporaries Mm. and we do that here too i was very intentional about bringing that whole spirit into the mogzim and about 20 percent of our wall space is dedicated to a timeline of synthesis that highlights um, 34 different innovations in a hundred year history Mm. and only three of them are moog innovations and the Mm. rest are others so why were his innovations celebrated so much or why did that end up being the go-to or was it just he hit the timing right that he was the newest innovation for those people to run into the doors the beatles these these larger he was the first okay he was the first one to make synthesis accessible Uh, there were synthesizers that existed before that but they were more um of an academic instrument in that they took up whole rooms in labs at Columbia Princeton Electronic Mm. Music Studio, for instance. Um, And so they were not accessible to the public. They were not really accessible to musicians. They were played by punch tape. And Mm. um, also um, there was another innovator um, who developed a synthesizer about a year after Bob. Um, His name was Don Bukla. And he's also... um, well uh, respected and and known, um, but he chose not to use a keyboard with his synthesizer. Um, and Bob, on Herb Deutsch's insistence, decided to use to a, yeah. a, a keyboard. 
Um, so that made that made synthesis more more accessible to the musician. Sure. And um, fairly quickly, the um, over a period of about seven years, the Moog modulars um, then got um, evolved into the Mini Moog, mm -hmm. uh, which was a portable synthesizer. The modulars were not what we would call portable. Mm -hmm. And um, that really opened up the sonic realm for a lot of people, the Mini Moog did. That makes sense. Yeah. What is next, and, and and maybe you already mentioned it with the uh, hopeful expansion nationwide of the Dr. Bob School of Music, but what's next for the foundation um, and for the mission of what you're doing here? Well, what's next is always to expand our reach. Mm. We have worked for, we just celebrated our 17th anniversary We've been working for all of those years to strengthen every program we have. Mm. And we have this very solid uh, core for each mm -hmm. project. Um, so now the, the effort is to be able to share all that work that we've done for 17 years to, with more people. Mm. Um, so the expansion of Dr. Bob Sound School is an example of that. With the Bob Moog Foundation archives, we're hoping to get more of the archives online. We're also in a position where we're beginning to share more with um, different museums. Um, and actually, we were able to participate in Google Arts and Cultures, uh, mm -hmm. Music Makers and Machines. And we have 14 exhibits up on their platform um, that have been seen by like a half a million people. Awesome. So that's, you know, one one way that we will help share the archives um we need to um be able to put a lot more resources towards our websites to be able mm -hmm. to do that so that's something we're working on um you know funding is always an issue so we're we're working towards that and then with the Moxium, um what we would like to see happen is finding ways to to bring our work um, to people who can't necessarily come to Asheville. Mm. So we are trying to increase um, our offerings of live events, but also some uh, continued expansion of the Moxium website um, will be in our future. Okay. Um, and there will be a time when we will likely need a bigger uh, physical facility because we are already beginning to grow out of mm. the space that we're in. Sure. Yeah. With AI coming to the forefront, and I just was listening to a, another podcast recently, and they were talking about music and, and AI and, and what that means. Have you thought about that at all? Is that a next step beyond electronic music? How does that play into to music moving forward or doesn't it really matter i'm just curious you know i don't know enough about the possibilities of ai and music to be able to comment yeah it's not something that i've been able to delve into i'd really love to but mm -hmm. you know most of my time is spent on the work of yeah. the foundation i don't sure. i don't get to kind of delve into these philosophical <laughs> issues as much so sure <laughs> yeah i wish i could say more no, that's all, that's all right. I think it's it's definitely still an, an ongoing um, yeah, 
conversation. Yeah. We're going to know a lot more probably in the next year or two. Um, and then just one last question to wrap up with you today. And something that I ask all my guests is if you could sit down with somebody and, and have a conversation like we did today and, and that person could be living or past, who would you like to sit down and have a conversation with? My dad. Mm. Because uh, I have come to know him in, s- in such a different way that I have a ton of questions that I never had when I just knew him as dad yeah. and not Bob Moog. Mm. Um, and one of the very interesting things about this position that I'm in is that when I discover all these 50 years of history um, that we're stewarding forward, for me, I probably read that history a lot different than most people. Mm. And that I think, oh, that's what was going on when we were in the Williamsville house. That's why he was under so much stress. You know, that's why he yelled at me like that that one time. So um, I there's a different interweaving for me of his work and our family life. Um, but I still wonder about so much of how he interpreted his work, his place in music history, his, um, his working with so many different personalities, because I find that both incredibly rewarding and challenging yeah. and wonder how he navigated it with a couple people in particular that I can think of. Um, and uh, I think about that every day. I wish I could just sit with mm-hmm. him for one more day and ask him a bunch of questions. Yeah. Because I think the answers that he would provide would, you know, serve me for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Do you mind me asking, how old were you when he passed? I was 37. Okay. And you really, it wasn't until afterwards that you learned so much about his legacy. So you didn't even think like to ask those questions previously. Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, I would say that I learned about Bob Moog. I was introduced Mm -hmm. to Bob Moog from all of those people who sent in their testimonials. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing with us today about Bob, about your dad, and and the mission of the foundation. I really appreciate you taking the time out for us. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.